You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Right? And I tell you this because it relates to a topic that gets missed. Um, one of the things I love when you learn Torah and you see the Mephoshim is when you find an idea that was just sitting there, but you never thought of it. And it, it, it concerns a mitzvah that I think most of us, if not all of us, are all aware of. Uh, it's not something we really get to practice, or it's something we have a relationship with. Um, and it concerns the mitzvah of Yovel. Okay? This week's parsha, we're in Perak Chafhei Pasuk Tet, right? 25.9. Right? Uh, parsha Bahar begins with the, the mitzvah of Shemitah. Right? Every seven years, you let the land lie fallow. Um, and I think we have another year or two before Shemitah, and then we'll, everybody gets into the halachos. It's not a simple mitzvah. You know, for us, it's not a big deal. For us, it means, you know, sort of being careful what you buy at the supermarket and coming up with certain questions if you're planting stuff in your garden or if you want to buy flowers for Shabbos or ingredients in the sauces and in the wine and stuff like that. If you're a farmer, obviously, it's much more difficult because you basically have to leave your livelihood aside for a whole year, right? And even though, this is not our topic now, but, you know, Judaism found a loophole, had to mechira, you can sell it to non-Jews, are you allowed to, what's that about, what of cook? Um, so, there is a more difficult mitzvah, and that is the mitzvah of Yovel. Now, Yovel occurs only once every 50 years. 50 is a number we're relating to now during Spesalva, it's a nice 36th night, right? And um, and after you've had a year of Shemitah, you haven't farmed your land, you can't really mass produce it or sell it for produce. You can pick your own fruits, but obviously from a perspective of livelihood, it's a very difficult thing. Now you have a second one. It was second year, right? The kibbutzim in Israel, we, we don't have Yovel, we don't have the Jubilee, the 50th year, Midoraisa today, we've stopped counting. That's an interesting discussion, why we don't have Yovel today, um, whether there's an obligation or not, etc. Um, and because we don't have Yovel, according to many authorities, Shemitah, the sabbatical year, is also not a biblical, it's not a Dorais anymore. But putting that all aside, that's an incredibly difficult mitzvah. After you've just had a year off, you take another year off. Right? And there's an interesting detail in the mitzvah of Yovel. Okay? It's a specific mitzvah, right? At the end of Yovel. Now, when does Yovel end? Right? When does Shemitah start? Anybody know when Shemitah starts? When does the sabbatical year start? Anybody know? Pretty obvious answer. Rosh Hashanah. It starts on Rosh Hashanah. That's right. So, Shemitah ends on Rosh Hashanah, right? Correct? Okay. So, Yovel starts on Rosh Hashanah. When does Yovel end? Not Rosh Hashanah. Nope. Yovel ends on Yom Kippur, which is kind of interesting, right? And the pasuk says, "Ve'avarta shofar trua b'chodesh hashvi be'asor l'chodesh." You blow a shofar on the seventh month, the tenth day, right? Be'yom akipurim taviru shofar b'chol aratzachem. It doesn't say. It says, "Ve'avarta." You pass it. Right? Ta'aviru. What is ta'aviru? To pass it. It should say, Vahareotem. Or utkatem. 
right? That's what they find in other places, right? So what does it mean, la'avir shofar? And what is this mitzvah? When do we blow this mitzvah, this shofar? When do we blow shofar on Yom Kippur? Everybody knows, Matzi Yom Kippur. We don't actually blow it on Yom Kippur. We blow it at the end of Yom Kippur. In fact, the shofar blast that we blast at the end of Yom Kippur is to remember the mitzvah of shofar and yovah. Right? You didn't really blow a shofar on Matzi Yom Kippur every year. You blew it on Matzi Yom Kippur of the 50th year of Yovel. That was this mitzvah. That's the Doraisa. And the question is, why am I blowing a shofar on Matzi Yom Kippur when everything's over? Rosh Hashanah blowing the shofar makes sense. In the midst of the day, in the middle of Musaf, when I'm deep in my moment, communing with Hashem, trying to figure out who I am, blow the shofar is supposed to wake me up, right? Nope. We don't blow a shofar on Yom Kippur. We blow a shofar when Yom Kippur's over. Why do we blow a shofar when Yom Kippur's over, right? So what actually happens when we blow the shofar? I'm sure many of you know this. There are two significant things that occur at the end of 50 years, okay, when that shofar is blown. The first is that all of the indentured servants, what's called an evadivri, all of the avadim, they're not really slaves, they're more like indentured servants, We've spoken about this before. Um, you know, a slave is someone owned by a master. An indentured servant is someone the master has paid to work for him. And he has legal rights. He has social benefits. If there's enough food in the house for one person, he gets it. If there's only one bed, he sleeps on it. And the list goes on. The Gemara says, Kana Evid, Kana Rav. If a person purchases a an indentured servant, an Evid Ivri, who's trying to pay off his debt, for example, he's actually purchased a master because you'll owe him more than he'll do for you. And it was part of a social system of chesed that, that existed. Um, at the end of six years, in the Shemitah year, the, those indentured servants go free. But some of you may remember from Parshat Mishpatim that in fact, a, a servant can decide he wants to stay with his master, and if the master agrees, right? If the servant says, I love my master and my wife and children, it's interesting that he lists his master first, his condition to read decides to stay. Now, Chazal don't look on this sort of with such a positive eye without getting into the details. But he's allowed to do that. If he does that and he commits to staying, then he's there for the duration until Yovah. But at the end of the 50th year, at the end of Jubilee, which isn't always necessarily his 50th year, if he became an Eved, if he became an indentured servant in year 30 of the cycle, then he'll be with his master for 20 years. At the end of Yovel, everybody goes free. Even if you don't want to, even if you love the life and you're happy not to have responsibilities and you love the fact that you work for a wealthy guy and he takes you on his trips to Italy and he gives you a, a, a mansion to live in as the servant's quarter, but at the end of Yovel, everybody goes free, right? It's an interesting question why everybody goes free. But let's suffice it to say, avadayim v'lo avadei avadim, right? The Gemara elaborates on this, right? We're meant to understand that we're not supposed to serve any other human being. We only serve Hashem. Okay, that's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens is the Aretz, right, the, the, the land returns, let's me to it, it returns to its original owners. In other words, um, if, uh, if uh, for argument's sake, uh, Roe Hertzfeld is from the Hertzfeld clan of Shevet Ephraim, and his portion of land was given to him, he inherited it from the portion of land of his father and his father inherited it from his father all the way back to when Yeshua split up portions of land to Shevet Ephraim to the tribe of Ephraim 
But Rabbi Hertzfeld, you know, he wants to sit and learn. He figures, you know what, I'll sell my land. I'm not a farmer anyway. And I'll let somebody else use the land, and I'll have money. I can sit and call and learn. Kishmat, right? Well, at the end of 50 years, that land goes back to Rabbi Hertzfeld. By the way, think about this. If, if, if you want to sell your land that's the 49th year, you're not going to get much for it. Because you can only sell it for a year, right? But if, you, if it's the sixth year, and you could sell your land for, for 47 years, well, that's a big deal. So those are the two things that happen. All the servants go back, they're free, and all the land goes back to its original owners. And a shofar is blown at the end of Yom Kippur to signify the moment that this occurs. Now, why do we do that? What is that shofar about? What does it mean? Right? So I want to share with you a fascinating uh, idea that comes from the Sefer Achinuch. I don't know how many of you have studied the Sefer Achinuch. Uh, this is a fantastic learning project. If you're looking to start something that's manageable, easy, metrics, very easy to sort of measure your progress, it's a, it's a fantastic way to become familiar with all the mitzvot of the Torah. Right? The Sefer Achinuch, uh, we don't know who the author of the Sefer Achinuch is. We do know that he wrote this for his uh, son who was becoming Bar Mitzvah. He mentions this in a number of places. And some associated with the Truma Sadeshen, but whatever. Um, it was clearly a late Risha, late medieval authority, 14th, possibly 15th century. And um, he was one of the first. He basically goes through the mitzvah according to the Parashiyot HaShavu, according to the portion of the Right? So, for example, there's no... The Sefer Chinuch doesn't talk about Parashat Mikates because there's no mitzvah there. Right? But when you get to Parashat, like, a, you know, Breshit, there's one. Noach has the Shevet Mitzvah. But when you get to sort of, you know, Parashat, like Bahar, Tetzay, Emor, there's a lot of mitzvah, then the Sefer Chinuch discusses this. And when he goes to the mitzvah, he actually has three sections. First, he tells you what the mitzvah is. Okay? Then he tells you, right, Mishor Mitzvah, which is basically the root, the understanding, sort of the philosophical underpinning. He writes this, by the way, very easy Hebrew. It's very easy to, to, to follow, for those of you that have trouble with Hebrew. And also, I forget which publisher, it might be Feldheim, but there's a, a wonderful set that was published. We have a copy of the Yeshiva uh, that has translated all of the Sefer Chinuch, so really easy Sefer to learn. I don't know if it's online. And then he has Dinah Mitzvah. Then he has some of the basic halachos of the mitzvah. So it's not an exhaustive treatment, but just to give you a sense of some of the halachos, right? So he says an amazing thing. Listen to the Sefer This is mitzvah Shin Lamed Aleph, right? 311, uh, 31. Mitzvah The mitzvah blowing the shofar on Yom Kippur of Yovah. It's interesting, by the way. We blow this sort of at the end of Yom Kippur, but it's considered to be blown on Yom Kippur. It's worth pointing out uh, that the shofar was actually born at blown at the conclusion of the day midoraita, which meant that you blew it at sunset. Now we don't blow it. The Sephardim actually still do this; they blow it right at sunset. Many have the custom, and in Ashkenaz especially, I know when I was growing up, Rishonim was very makbid, very specific that we didn't blow shofar until the end of Mariv. I once asked him why he did that, and because the halacha clearly you're allowed to blow it earlier. He said he did it for two reasons. One was because he knew that if they hadn't blown shofar yet, people would stay from Maharif, right? And the other reason was because they were afraid, and this is true for many postcards, that people would eat. They would think the fast is over and the fast is over. 
But technically, if you were living in the time of Yovel, they'd actually blow this. There are practical ramifications if it's after sunset but not yet says, the person is free, the land is free, and so on and so forth. Okay. So he says like this. Viadua, I'm, I'm skipping here, right? The mitzvah of blowing on this day, but to publicize the fact that every indentured server was going free. Right? But no, he didn't have to pay for his freedom. He just went free. Now, the Sefer Chinuch says that blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah is not the same at all as blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. And not everybody agrees to this. In fact, it's interesting, according to the Gemara, you learn the basics, right? If you look at this puzzle, that's how we learn that there are three colors. There are basic alakos of Lord Shofar Rosh Hashanah that we learn from Yofi. So there are many who connect these. No, these are two totally different ones. Okay? That blowing, blowing Rosh Hashanah. Blow that so far to, to focus us on all of the topics that are associated with Akira Sitzvah, the willingness to give to Hashem, the fact that we are Ne'ekat, that we are, 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 are completely in the service of Hashem. You know, Hashem runs the world, everything is, is all for the boss type of thing, right? And we too should try to do everything to demonstrate our love for Hashem willing to give the totality of everything we do, right? that will be worthy before Hashem, right? The Zot, but this mitzvah of Yovel, Zot HaTkiyash of Yovel, it's publicized the freedom, the fact that the indentured servants are free, right? And the fact that the land goes free. Okay, so we have to understand. So he goes on. Right? Since we know that the shofar will arouse the heart of a person. In fact, the Rambam, the Rambam Hilchos Tshuva, the Rambam Hilchos Tshuva in Perak Gimel actually says as follows. He says, Right? There's an allusion to this. The essence of the Shafar going to Rambam is to arouse us from our slumber. Search your deeds. Right? And this refers to the fact that Nabi says, awake and arouse from your slumber, those who sleep. You know, some people sleep through life. These are the people who forget the truth. They're so busy pursuing all the nonsense the world, they've forgotten what's real. They have layers man, the shokim kosh natam, the heaven of the They waste their time all year in, in nonsense and things that have no meaning. They don't accomplish anything. It won't help them. Right? Make your ways better. And everybody should leave sort of the negative things, right? That's the, the Haftarah we read on fast days, right? We should leave our path. So Rosh Hashanah, 
the shofar, according to the Rambam, is to arouse us. The Zefer Chinuch agrees. This is a vehicle that arouses us. But this arousal is not the Yitshuva. This arousal is, 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 is to publicize the freedom. What does that mean? So he says, Inyan Shiloh HaEved, Sheavadet Adonav, sending this indentured servant that has been serving his master possibly for some time, right? Zman Rav, this is a difficult thing to do. You know, you got some guy, he knows your household, he knows how to manage your things, he knows how to cook for you, he knows how to clean for you, he knows how to do everything. And all of a sudden, he's walking out the door, not because you want him to, right? Not even necessarily because he wants him to. So, this is difficult. you got to find in the bed. There's a certain discomfort to this, right? By the way, Imagine that you're a wealthy landowner and you have 20 indentured servants. And all of a sudden, they all go free. You've just lost your workforce. And by the way, you cannot purchase another one until after Yom Kippur. You just had Shemitah and Yovel. You can't do this during Shemitah and Yovel. So you're stuck. you got to go now and find it. That, that's a little scary, right? To strengthen everybody. Listen to this line. To strengthen us, to motivate us, to, to remind us of this important mitzvah. When everybody sees that this is not just you alone. This is everybody. You know, imagine how an Evid feels. Now remember, this Evid is Jewish. Right? You can't have an opinion. And, and he's been living in, I don't know, the Rothschild house for the last 20 years. And he wants to be there. His wife is there. His children are there. He has a good life. You know, why not? He's taking care of him. He lives in the Rothschilds. He knows if he dies, they'll take care of his wife and children too. They're also working. And all of a sudden, he has to leave. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He doesn't have a partner. He doesn't have a job. Didn't get the indentured servant's degree certificate. So this is a pretty scary thing. If you think about the type of personality that becomes an Evid, it's a person who's not completely comfortable with doing things on his own. He likes having somebody else think for him and decide what he's going to do. It's a little scary to get out there in the world, right? This so far tells us, reminds us, you're not the only one in this boat. There are a lot of other people who are going free at the same time. Gamma Evid Batsmos, that's a Sefer Mit Orer. He has to be awoken to leave his master whom he loves. And thus this shofar arouses us to realize that we're meant to serve only a Baruch Right? Not a simple thing. So if you really broke this down into what the Sefer Achinach is saying, the Sefer Achinach is saying, this is a difficult thing to do. It's difficult to lose your land. It's difficult to lose your servants. It's difficult to know after two years of Shemitah and Yovel that an uncertain future lies ahead. What gives a person what is this chizuk? Right? What boosts my morale? The knowledge that I'm not the only one. That everybody else in the neighborhood is releasing their indentured servants. And all over the country indentured servants are going free. Right? We are enormously influenced by, by what people around us do. 
we're affected, right? Just to give you an example, when I was a kid, um, you know, and I, we would go to shul, you wore a suit and a tie, I went to shul, you know, I think for the time I was like eight or nine, I was already wearing a suit. And we had these very fat ties, that was the style then, big fat ties, you can look at old pictures, you can see this. I still had a bunch of them, like even sort of when I got married, but I didn't wear them much, I was in the army, I was in Gush. And my wife finally said, all these are going out. Now this is not logical. I want you to know, do you know why, do you know how ties came into being? This is interesting. Now this happened in the British Commonwealth. A tie was basically a bib. The original ties were very big, fat, diamond-shaped things. You would wear them on your shirt, and they would protect your shirt. Much easier to wash a tie, which was small, than a whole shirt. So having a fat tie actually makes a lot of sense. Who here hasn't had that stain right in the middle of the shirt? If you have a tie, you're covered, right? Or if you get a stain, you can put the tie on. Why do we lose those ties? Because nobody else is wearing them. We don't want to be wearing what no one else is wearing. We want to, we want to belong. We, we want to be part of something, right? So we let go of these things, right? And we become comforted because everybody around us is doing the same thing, right? I'll give you another example. I saw a really interesting statistic, okay? This is gonna blow your mind. I looked this up on the American Heart Association, okay, the AMH and the CDC. The, the Center for Disease Control, right, has a whole um, uh, website about this, right? How many people, I'm just looking at America now, how many people in America will start smoking this year? This is interesting. Now think about this. There isn't anybody alive. You, you, you almost, you'd have to live in a bubble to not know that smoking is, is terribly unhealthy, dangerous. They could kill you. They could kill around you the people that you love. Why would anyone in their right mind start smoking? I understand someone started smoking before all this started. And even when I was 18 or 19, we weren't so aware of this. But today, I mean, who hasn't seen programs, documentaries? You can see it everywhere. The advertising is lower. 730,000 people under the age of 18 will start smoking this year. That is unbelievable. That's about 2,000 people a day in America will start smoking cigarettes, which is crazy, right? And, and you read some of the statistics on, on I mean, you know, $9.36 billion was spent on advertising and promotion of cigarettes in, 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 in last year, right? Um, and the list goes on. You can look this stuff up. You don't need to share for this, right? So why do people start smoking? Like, why would you start smoking? It's crazy. What is the number one reason why people under the age of 18 begin to smoke? Anybody know? Look this up. Fascinating. Yeah? Because their friends do it? That's exactly right. Peer pressure. Peer pressure. 700,000 people will start smoking because of peer pressure. Right? It's the single biggest reason they start. We are born with an innate sense of wanting to belong, okay? And and the day after Yom Kippur, right, when, when a slave goes free, when the land goes free, it raises a question, who am I? If I've been working in somebody's home for 21 years, so then all of a sudden, that doesn't define who I am. It forces me to struggle with who am I really, right? I told you guys once, I had a, uh, uh, we had a student once at Israelite, he was the tallest Jew I ever met. He, he was unbelievable. He was like seven foot four, some ridiculous height. 
he was a basketball superstar, and he ended up at Israelite, and he, you know, very distant from Judaism. And I once was talking to him and asked him, how did you, like, what made you come, what made you... So he said that he was like, you know, and he was in elementary school already, the star of the basketball team. In high school, he was the captain of his basketball team. He went to some big university. I think it was North Carolina, but I don't remember. Uh, I could be getting that wrong. And, um, and, but it was a university like that. And he, and, and he played for this team. Like, you have to be a serious basketball player to play. And, and he was dreaming about getting to the NBA. And one day he was, at a, he was playing in a, a game. And he went up uh, for a layup or whatever it was, or a dunk. And he came down and he cracked his ankle. And the way he described it to me, the crack was so loud that the whole, the, the, the entire arena heard the crack. And they had to take him off the field, and you remember all the drama and whatever. And uh, his coach came to visit him like a day or two later in the hospital. And by this time, they had done the x-rays and the MRIs and whatever else they did back then. And the coach basically had to tell him his career was over. Like, it would never fully heal. And the NBA, when they see something like that, they're not interested. They won't take the risk. His career was over. So this guy went into a tailspin. You know, who am I? What am I? And, and he ended up in Israelite. And I got into this really deep discussion. And he said, you know, I had to, I had to ask myself a really big, big question. Like for years, my whole identity was that I played basketball. That's who I am. That's what I do. And all of a sudden, I can't play basketball. So who am I? Like what's my, what, what am I meant to be doing? And of course, he had to go through this process of struggling and coming to the conclusion that who you are is not what you do. Who you are is who you are. That's a totally different idea. The day after Yom Kippur, the minute Yom Kippur ends, after this intense communion with the Kodesh Baruch Hu, the shofar blows, and the Jewish people are awakened to the fact that, that you're not what you own, and you're not where you work. You are your relationship with Hashem. Right? You don't have a soul. You are a soul. In fact, it's really interesting. Where else, let's see if somebody here has Bikias, where else do I find mention? It's actually a Rashi. Um, although it comes from the Chalta, I could be wrong about that. Of the day after Yom Kippur. Anybody remember? When in the Torah was the day after Yom Kippur significant? Yisro, no? Pardon? Yisro, no? Nope. It's a good guess, nope. Yitro yeah, is... Uh, sixth people, no? Yitro is 6th or 7th of Sivan. No, well, like you say, that you're doing it wrong, and like the judging. No, 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 specifically the day after Yom Kippur. So the beginning of Parsha Vayakel, you can look this up, it's in uh, Paraglam and Hei Pasuk Aleph, the first Pasuk of Vayakel. It says, Vayakel Moshe kol adat Israel. You know what Rashi says there? He says, L'machrat Yom HaKippurim Okay? This is the moment where Moshe Rabbeinu gathers the Jewish people together, all of them, and kol And it's one of the questions, why do you need to gather everybody? And he gives them the mitzvah of building a mishkan. Now, mind you, Rashi is of the opinion that the, that the mitzvah to build the mishkan, to build the tabernacle, was the consequence of the sin of the golden gap, of Chet Right? So, he gathers together the entire Jewish people, right? And, and by the way, this makes sense. I mean, 6th, 7th day of Sivan, Shavuot, Moshe goes up, we hear the Ten Commandments. 40 days later, on the 17th of Tammuz, which as a result is now a fast day for perpetuity, Moshe comes down and breaks the tablets. A couple of days, he's mopping things up, you know, taking care of the people who made that mistake, and so on and so forth. 
but we need to be forgiven. So he goes back up on Har Sinai for 40 days. He goes up on the 20th of Tammuz. He comes down 40 days later, which is the first Rosh Chodesh Elul. Right? And that's why Rosh Chodesh Elul, the beginning of the new month of Elul, Anida Dodiva Dodili, is the beginning of the process of tshuva, of coming back. And, and Rosh Chodesh Elul, he comes down and he says we've been forgiven. But of course, we may have been forgiven, but we're back where we started. We still don't have the Torah, we don't have the Luchot. So he goes back up again for 40 days, comes down on Yom Kippur, and that's why Yom Kippur is Yom Kippur. Or at least that's one way of looking at it. And he brings us the second Luchot. And Yom Kippur represents forgiveness. We wake up the morning afterwards, Moshe gathers everybody together, and he says we're going to build a Mishkan. So this is fascinating. The day after Yom Kippur is the day that represents that now that we've been forgiven, now that we've rediscovered our relationship with Hashem, that challenges us to think about what are we meant to do with that? What are we supposed to do? Who are we supposed to be? Isn't it interesting that the first moment, the first day after Yom Kippur that ever happened was all about people coming together. It was all about being a part of something bigger than myself. It was all about belonging. It was about Kahal Adat Israel, Right? The entire congregation of Israel. And that's the shofar blast of the end of Yom Kippur. The land goes back to its owners. The servants go free. People are having a difficult day. They're trying to... We're all in this together. Everybody needs to know that moment. Everybody needs to be aware of that moment. You know? It's kind of like, uh, in a certain way, I think it's easy to relate this to what we're going through. Nobody's really sure where this is going to end up. You know? We're in the middle of this this coronavirus. They're, they're in Israel, 25% unemployment. That's unbelievable. 25% of the country is unemployed. Right? Two and a half months ago, that number was a little over 4%, which was one of the better rates of unemployment in the world, 25%. There are states in America where the unemployment is over 30%, right? It's the highest level of unemployment since the Depression. And in some states, it's worse than the Depression of 1929, when the American economy tanked. And you have people who built businesses over a lifetime. Everything was looking great. And this act of Hashem, this crazy play comes along and, and they're done you know there's a, a, a I was in uh, the old city this week with, uh, uh, with Scott and Michal who were doing something uh, preparing something for you guys for your original line I think you'll enjoy it but um, we passed this like a salad bar that opened up and I said oh I never noticed that and Scott told me that salad bar opened a week before Corona a week this guy invested all his money made this beautiful front beautiful salad bar, had a week of business, and he's done. And, you know, you could imagine having a salad bar in the old city is not really doing well right now. So he's, he's out. He may have to close his store. And that's just one example of millions and millions of people. Probably the most important thing that we can do during this period of time, aside from all the obvious to help people get business loans, but this is bigger than one guy gave to Stucka, is that all the people who are struggling should know that they're not alone. You know, we had a student um, whose uh, grandfather is uh, Zach here, Zach Bernstein. I thought I saw him before. So I don't know if you know, but we're doing this year, Lilu Nishmat, your grandmother, And it's a very difficult time, you know. You, 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 you. I had a student whose uh, who's, who's grandfather passed away, and his father's an old friend, went from high school. And normally I would, you know, figure out a way to call up with other Shiva, but you can't, so, he's, so I Zoom Shiva. It was a, such a strange experience. 
You know, when you go to a shiva, you're not supposed to speak to a person until he addresses you. The basic idea is that you're not there to make yourself noticed. You're just there to be there for him or her. And if they want to talk to you, great. And if they don't, that's fine. And you could sit there. I've sometimes been in a shiva where I don't really know the person that well, but for various reasons I decided to go and show my respect. And I, they don't really know. I'm not close with the person who happens to be shiving shiva or the person I knew wasn't there and I went, whatever. So you sit for 30, 40 minutes and you realize that they don't need you to be there. So you get up and you say, and you go. And you kind of wonder, what did you do? And I was a little sort of uncertain because I've never been on a Zoom shiva. Like the guy sees you pop up but, you know, there's a bunch of people on the Zoom Shiva. You're not supposed to say anything until he... And, and he knew the halacha. So I just sat there on a screen watching until he, you know, finally, like, noticed me, whatever it might be. Right? It's all about being there. That's what this shofar is. This shofar is also an awakening. It's awakening us to the fact that we're, we're amichad. We're, 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 we're supposed to be here for each other supposed to feel. And I'll, I'll finish just with this and then we'll open up the floor if anybody has any questions. You know, the Rambam talks about this. The Rambam and Hilchot Deot, we'll get to this when we get to Paragvav, but the Rambam and Hilchot Deot um, actually discusses this and he says, he talks about the power of pure pressure, right? Derech Briyato, the beginning of the sixth parent. Derech Briyato shal adam liot nimshach v'deotav uvumasav acharei reav v'chavirav it's, it's the natural thing for a person to be drawn and to be influenced by the behaviors of those around him, those he's close with, the country that he lives in. And the Ramam is going to go on. We'll get into this when we, when we get to this discussion. But the Ramam goes on. If you're living in an unhealthy environment, you need to distance yourself from the environment. If you're living in a country where there's no system of court, you need to get out. You have to leave that country. If you can't leave that country, you need to leave the cities and, and hide in the fields. You can't live in a place where there's no healthy civil system. By the way, if Jews in Germany would have listened to this in, in 1933 when Hitler came to power, it was very quickly apparent that the judicial system was falling apart. Probably 150,000 Jews would have been spared because at that point they could still get out. Right? So that's the flip side. But on the positive side, we look to surround ourselves to be a part of something bigger precisely because we can influence it and it can influence us. And that's the mitzvah of blowing the shofar on Yom Kippur, right? That, that we have a responsibility. I hope, you know, one of the beautiful things about this, uh, with all the challenges and all the pain and, and communities that have lost hundreds of people, it's terrible. But at the same time, it's remarkable how the world has succeeded over the last couple months, for the most part, in putting aside the nonsense. In, in focusing on what's real and what's important and what's meaningful and learning how to be there for each other even when we can't be there physically, right? I think that this is translatable to all of our relationships, right? And and, and the hope, Bezrat Hashem, is that we'll be able to take the message of this Motzei Yom Kippur, of this, this chauffeur blast that was designed to sensitize us to the fact that whereas for us, Matzah Yom Kippur is awesome, we're going to Penas Manim, we're, 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 we're eating, there are people out there who are scary, who are scared. It's, it's, it's a tenuous time. And, and it's such a moment when all we can think about is the bagel waiting for us at home. To take a pause, to be sensitive to other people who might be going through difficulty, 
Wow, what a powerful message. Something to think about. And Parshat Bahar during these times of Corona. A little food for thought. Um, let me pause here and just uh, see. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.